Crypto Watch is presented by theconstantinvestor.com. I'm Alan Kohler, and every day my writing and podcasts put the financial world into context with a focus on the issues that matter. Join us today. It's only a dollar for the first month. And now it's time for this week's Crypto Watch. Joining me now is Greg Metcraft, the former chairman of the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, who's now director of the OECD Directorate for Financial and Enterprise Affairs based in Paris. And he's visiting Melbourne to speak at a blockchain and cryptocurrency conference. Here's Greg Metcraft. Well, Greg, um, I guess since cryptocurrencies are all global in their character, um, the, the best regulation would be global rather than each country doing its own thing. Uh, but do you think that's even possible at the G20 level to have global regulations about cryptocurrencies? Well, I think what you you need is global policies uh, that can guide governments, and then obviously governments can take those global policies and turn them into regulation, and that's you know, that's the way you try and get um, a global approach, and that's why uh, OECD or if you want other international organisations are very important to look to set sort of policy standards that then can help governments. Um, put in place appropriate regulatory frameworks. But equally, what's really important, I think, is industry standards are just as important to lead the way and actually to help shape government policy. I think that's we need both to be uh, efficient. You're off to Buenos Aires for a G20 meeting on finance. Um, what, what sort of discussion is taking place about this, these matters at G20? Well, I think with ICOs, clearly 12 months ago, uh, ICOs were sort of regarded as sort of too small to really care, whereas now 12 months later, when I think it was six or seven billion issued in the last 12 months, they've, they've come too big to ignore. And clearly the, uh, you know, the, 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 um, the German and the French governments have called on the G20 to really put in place an appropriate uh, framework, and I think Christine Lagarde from IMF has also called for a discussion about you know, appropriate regulatory frameworks. So uh, I think what's going to be talked about is clearly what are the issues uh, and uh, um, uh, what needs to be done. And I think with ICOs, it's pretty clear that where it is effectively a security, then it, you know, we need to apply the sort of principles that are normally applied in securities regulation that deal with regulate you know how you regulate markets and how you regulate issuance of securities and it, it and then it needs to be thought about how you would actually tailor it um, for ICOs which are uh, you know different to normal securities but you know frankly they, they are in most cases securities if particularly if you look at the three categories of crypto assets payment tokens, asset tokens, or utility tokens, asset tokens, obviously, uh, securities offerings. You, you were pretty forward-looking when you were running the uh, running ASIC in Australia. You were on the front foot with these things, and you kind of brought in some, um, uh, some guidelines around uh, how to deal with cryptocurrencies and the various tokens that you talk about. Uh, what sort of message are you then taking from that, that the lessons that you, that you had then and the thinking that you brought to it at ASIC uh, to the OECD. What are you, what are you saying to, to people about what should be done? Um, I've actually said that what you've got to be is proactive and forward-looking and, and rather than waiting till a problem occurs, 
we should be thinking about working with industry now uh, to develop uh, policy, global policy standards that uh, can help guide governments because we, we, we constantly are getting requests from governments because what OECD does is advise governments in over 100 jurisdictions and they are looking for consistent uh, um, you know, standards of how they approach setting regulation for whether it's blockchain or ICOs, frankly. So uh, just like here in Australia, you know, I said, if you're going to be good at this, you've got to be proactive and forward-looking, and also you've got to understand it before you do something about it. So it actually means a lot of education of, uh, of regulators to make sure they understand what, what this is all about. And, you know, simply in some countries, just banning things is not a great particular outcome, frankly. <laughs> I think you've got to shape it. But but uh, which of the cryptocurrencies is a security already and therefore covered by existing securities laws and which of them are not and need new regulations around them? Well, you know, ICOs, most ICOs, um, if an ICO basically somebody is buying an initial coin offering, well, let's face it, um, you know, Bitcoin is not a coin, um, you know, an Initial coin offering is is not uh, is not a coin. So, but if it if it increases in if somebody is buying it with an expectation of increase in value, it is probably a security. Okay, so that defines a security, and therefore it should be covered under securities laws. It's as simple as that. And we the well, guidance that we covers, to them that, that that should then cover all of them, isn't it? Bitcoin is therefore a security, and basically they're all securities. Everyone's buying them. The expectation. Uh, no, because, because actually, with 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 a payment token, uh, I'd classify Bitcoin as a payment token as opposed to an, an asset. Uh, the the key issue for that is actually it is is actually not actually offering a particular service. Um, it's actually just providing a method of payment. It may or may not go up. People may not necessarily be buying it. Yes, there's argument they may be buying it for speculative reasons, but if it is a payment token, they're actually using it as a form of payment. And the key thing there that's required is making sure that you've got appropriate um, KYC and anti-money laundering requirements on the payment token. That's the key thing for a payment token, whereas an asset token uh, is really something that actually is offering to provide either a share of profit or some sort of services. That is basically a business, and that is that is is why it's a securities offering. Right. So, so for things like Bitcoin and other payment tokens, do they need a whole new uh, system of regulation created, or can it be caught by existing money laundering and know your customer uh, regulations? I, I, think, I, I don't think it needs. I think it needs, the key thing with payment tokens, because they're payment tokens, is is to be covered by AML KYC. That's the most important. Thing, actually, I mean that the biggest issue with Bitcoin is its lack of traceability, and that just is not going to be uh, tolerated for much longer. It's one of those cases where, when it was too small to worry about, wasn't a problem, but now it's become again too big to ignore. And and you will see, you know, as you have seen in you know some jurisdictions, it's just simply banned it. Uh, I think either the uh, Bitcoin itself will need to change uh, to be traceable, or there will be mechanisms put in place to make sure that, you know, between in individuals who, you know, basically you need to be able to trace it back to an entity or a person. But that could be a, a 
can be identified so they can deal with issues of uh, tax avoidance or organized crime or you know terrorism funding or whatever so i mean that, that that's critical you've got to have that but that's why people like bitcoin and the other things is because they're not traceable i mean if if they become traceable uh it's probably not not going too far to say that it's pointless well actually no the beauty of coin is that between parties it's anonymous between parties individuals it's it's anonymous so that is still attractive but it it has it it can remain anonymous between individuals or or entities but what's most important is that authorities still have the ability to trace what's going on if it's actually going to bad actors i mean you, you've just got to have that frankly <laughs> that, that is kind well, of what uh, people you, like about it. a lot of people like about it is because it, it can't be traced they love that uh, no, oh they may be but i mean that that is not a good purpose for having a digital currency it basically it's to actually break the law <laughs> frankly yeah so, fair enough. uh yeah that's not if it's if basically the purpose people are buying and that's why one of the things from alan that i think will you will see evolve very quickly though, that will put pressure on, uh, anyway, on things like uh, Bitcoin. Uh, if you think about it, there are three types of, of payment tokens or cryptocurrencies. There's fiat digital currencies, which are very close, very close, um, either retail or wholesale. Then you've got asset-backed cryptocurrencies, which are backed actually by currency or you know, commodities like oil. And then you've got um, asset-backed, uh, oh, sorry, and then you've got uh, things like Bitcoin that are backed or Ethereum that effectively are not backed by anything, but it's basically relies on the supply and demand algorithm. I don't think, I think that actually we, what I see emerging is, is the future probably belongs in more fiat or asset backed cryptocurrencies than what we have today. And actually that the fact that they're traceable is when I think these things will, will accelerate, I think to uh, put pressure on, uh, the current, if you want the current version of, uh, you know, being uh, things like uh, Ether or uh, um, uh, Bitcoin. I, I think we're in an evolving market. In fact, last September, when you were still ASIC chairman, um, you told the Financial Review Conference, I think it was that, um, that you thought the bank accounts could become unnecessary within the next decade because central banks will create digital currencies and allow customers to hold deposits directly with them. So that's really, you've been talking about that for a little while, that, that you could see um, fiat or central bank. There is, in government circles, a number of papers circulating on, on central bank digital, issued digital currencies as, as we speak. And I think it's already known that uh, Sweden is very close to doing something on retail digital currency, as is China. And in the wholesale system, um, wholesale payments um, already there's a trial occurring between Canada and Singapore on uh, using digital a digital token to actually settle um, payments in the clearing system and that's in the fiat space and then in the uh, asset back space UBS is to digit is actually uh, is developing a token uh, that will be backed by currency lots of the central bank to actually create a private clearing system between banks so it, 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 it's it's happening. It's happening. It, it you, you know, many things don't happen overnight, to, but certainly that's the way it's going. Greg, explain to us the advantage for a central bank or a government like Sweden or China or someone to to have 
a digital um, or fiat-backed cryptocurrency? What, what, why would they do that? Uh, well, uh, for three reasons. One is actually uh, it's cheaper than issuing money, right? So the senior edge is extremely efficient, okay? Uh, secondly, uh, it actually, uh, it's, very, it's fully traceable, so basically enables the um, uh, tax authorities, etc., to actually deal with uh, potentially money laundering and uh, tax avoidance. So that's why many governments like the idea of centrally bank, central bank, central digital currencies. And thirdly, uh, it has it creates a revolution in terms of uh, for customers because actually there's no longer a need for central for for banks to actually necessarily if you to have a bank account, which actually saves in terms of transaction fees, etc. So the cost of transacting money is virtually is zero. So it produces a lot of efficiencies in the system, but also it does produce a lot of competition because suddenly, because you don't have to actually have a bank account because you've got a digital uh, wallet that's actually just on the central bank, uh, you may decide if you're excess cash to decide to either lend money to a bank or to lend money, say, to a money market fund. It becomes much easier. It puts a lot more competition actually into the retail banking system. So, but again, you know, it actually is. It 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 actually saves costs for consumers. So, so um, what what are we talking about actually in relation to say Sweden? Are we talking about them having the krona on blockchain? Is essentially that is that what we're talking about? Because well, I mean, it may not because be block, may not be may not be sorry blockchain. It could be some other technology, but a digital krona is it what? Um, Sweden is already largely a digitised economy. You can hardly use use cash in Sweden. You probably know that, right? Um, so the step for them to go to uh, issue a digital krona is not that big of a leap, given that currency is hardly used much at all already in Sweden. And actually, it doesn't mean to say they would eliminate currency, but they would just provide the option. I expect. But I was just going. I was going to say, Greg, that I mean, I, I don't carry cash at all now. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the Australian right. dollar is digital. Yeah. Except that you've I mean, got so, something called a bank that's between you and the central bank today, right? Right. So that, that's what you're talking about is the the, the disintermediation of banks the, so that the currency that I hold is not actually – if it's a digital currency, it isn't um, – uh, there isn't well, a bank. Yeah, you think about the traditional role of banks in currency, the, the central banks needed – if you think about in a physical world, the, the central banks needed – banks to distribute physically currency, right? Well, if it's digital, they don't actually need the banks to do that anymore, right? But you'd need, the bank, you'd need the bank you'd need the bank to to hold the money for you, wouldn't you, or not? Why? If you've got a digital wallet and it's actually with the central bank, why would you need that? You could. You might you might still want them to have have a custody account. You might want to do that, yes. That, that's true, but then you may say, well, I'm quite happy to have a str- uh, I'm fine for my credentials to actually just, I'll hold my credentials myself. But you, no, you're right, there's an opportunity for banks to become custodians of um, of digital wallets. Yes, that, that's, I think many people have talked about that as a, a new role, but that may not necessarily need to be a bank to, hold, to be that custodian. It could be some other party. And it, in fact, it's quite interesting for banks because it probably is good for banks in the longer term because it means there's no necessarily need to hold capital, at least to hold um, 
they'd need to hold operational risk capital, but they wouldn't actually have to hold, um, uh, you know, um, credit capital against it because that would be just a custodian. So to a certain extent, it possibly makes it a lot better for banks because they're not actually they're not actually holding um, uh, deposits, right? They actually hold just custodians of digital wallets or you know the digital um, currency. But on this issue, one central bank has said to me, uh, very major jurisdiction said, well, if I'm willing to issue somebody with a bearer note, why wouldn't I be willing to issue them with a digital wallet? And it's a very good point, actually. Very good point. No, it's true, but the banks need to, to take deposits in order to make loans. So that's their whole business, isn't it? No, no. Banks need to raise money to make loans. So rather than the bank taking a deposit, they would actually actually borrow money from people, which is what they do today. So just change it. Just change well, it. Well, that's what, it, I, that's what I mean. I, I, the same. They still, they still, they still, they still take money, right? And you still have the credit creation, right? It just changes the nature of the relationship. So it means that the consumer with their digital wallet can decide, you know, to put money, transfer money to a bank who can lend that money, or they may equally decide to put it into a um, a fund, a cash management account, which in turn may lend money or, or whatever. So it's still cre- you still have credit creation, but it actually it's been cre- – the starting point is different, that's all. It's so interesting. And I mean, it's revolution. What you're talking about is a revolution, really. I mean, a totally different way of running the financial and monetary system. Yes, but you know what is interesting, Alan, from a, a monetary system perspective. The thing that's really interesting, you know, one of the FSB discussions, the beauty of the other beauty for monetary policy with a centrally bank digitally issued currency is you can actually see the true payment flows. Right. You can see exactly where money's being spent in the economy. So it gives central banks far greater insight into actually where money flows actually occurring because you're actually seeing the flows. So it's, it becomes quite interesting in terms of monetary policy, frankly. Well, I was going to say, what, what implications are there for monetary policy of the system you're talking about? Uh, far, far more efficient monetary policy because you're no longer estimating where money is flowing, you can actually you can actually tell where it's flowing. You actually know exactly where in the system money money is actually flowing. Uh, in terms of the way you set interest rates, etc., it makes it much more informed, right? Because at the moment the whole process is estimates, right? So uh, whereas with central bank digital issued currencies, you actually see the you actually you you actually see the accounts of the whole economy. So uh, it it basically lets you see the flows, right? So the, the setting of interest rates still becomes, you know, you, you, you can set them, but you're much more informed. So it's interesting because, I mean, the traditional role of a bank, a commercial bank, is to, in a sense, act as the money creation uh, arm of the central bank. They actually do the money creation for the central bank, don't they? But you're, and you're talking about a world well, in which that doesn't happen uh, anymore. They, they, sorry, they would still do that. That's the point. They would still do that. They would still be doing exactly that, but they would still exactly do that. But in, but they wouldn't be doing it as deposit takers. They do it as borrowers. Okay, it's, it's just right. it's the same thing. The money is still flowing out of my digital wallet. I'm still making. A, a, you can say it. I'm still making a deposit with the bank. But I'm choosing. I'm not doing it in, if you want, in an inertia form because it's they're holding my money. I'm actually, I'm actually going to, you know what I mean? I'm actually, I'm actually 
choosing to deposit with them, okay? Because I don't need to have a deposit account. I don't need a transaction account with them anymore, okay? So what it means is the traditional hold that banks have over individual finances is broken. So all the inertia money disappears, if you want, right? Because basically it's it's sitting in a... um, in a crypto, you know, in a, in a, in a wallet. Um, so it, it, the interesting thing is, I think it puts a lot of pressure on banks in terms of competition for money, because I think what you will have is a lot of it will open up um, uh, to, if you want, non-bank. It opens up probably more opportunity for non-banks to compete for deposits. Okay, because frankly, people no longer. Um, you know, then their money is no longer necessarily by inertia sitting in a in a transaction bank account, right? So, so, so and I presume, I presume for this to occur, there'd have to be some kind of big bang, a regulatory or legislative big bang. Um, is that what Sweden's looking at? That you know, if to bring it about? No, I don't think. No, just... I don't think so. I don't think so. No, I don't think it's a big bang. I mean, basically, if somebody wants to go to the you know, central bank and say, look, can I have my rather than having this million dollars in cash can actually just get it as a crypto as an asset wallet and they go yeah sure here you go here's your here's your here's your you know um your hash code or whatever it is fine i I don't think this is i think this is evolution not revolution frankly but the thing about it is that i think once it occurs and i think the the benefit of it for consumers is incredibly you know like can you imagine no more credit card fees, no more transaction fees, et cetera, et cetera? It becomes pretty attractive to um, individuals, right? Also, no, no counterparty risk to banks, right? I don't have to worry about counterparty risk. <laughs> My exposure is to the central bank. That was Greg Metcraft, Director of the OECD, Director for Financial and Enterprise Affairs. Mm-hmm.